Well, if you have a Bible there, if you want to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, we are almost to the end of, of the book. It's been a while, but uh, 1 Timothy 6, and our sermon text this morning is 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 through 19. If you're able to do so, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's word today. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, give ear to the word of God. Paul writes, as for the rich in this present age... Charge them not to be haughty, uh, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, uh, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, again, we're almost at the end of the book, only a couple more verses after this. Uh, and First Timothy, you probably know, many of you, that it's one of the, we call them the pastoral epistles. That's First and Second Timothy and Titus. And what those books were written for, their purpose, among other things, was to teach Timothy and Titus, and therefore after them, us, how we are to, uh, how things are to be rightly ordered in the household of God. How are things to be done in the church? How is ministry supposed to be done as pastors and elders? We aren't left to our own devices. We aren't left to guess and grope around in the dark. In fact, uh, earlier in this book, in chapter 3, verses 14 to 15, Paul gives us what we might call a purpose statement. We've read it a few times during the course of our time in this book. But this is what he says in 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 to 15. He says to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So that's why he wrote this letter. That's really why he wrote Second Timothy and Titus as well. He wanted these young pastors who he had entrusted with this work that God had called them to for the time being to know how things ought to be done and ordered in God's church. And so, you know, we in the church today, we might not think about it much, but we owe a great deal of our understanding of church life and the way it should be, the way it shouldn't be, and ministry, how it should be, how it shouldn't be. We owe our understanding of, of these things uh, to these letters primarily, among other parts of Scripture as well. And so, you know, we should humbly thank God uh, that he hasn't left us in the dark in these things, but he has given us in his holy word, inerrant instruction, infallible instruction regarding these things in his word. We don't have to cross our fingers and hope that we know what we should be doing. He gives us many instructions in his word about all these things. If you've been here through most of or all of this study, uh, you might remember some of the things that Paul touches on in this brief letter. Uh, he starts off warning Timothy uh, and does this more than once in the letter, warns him. I mean, he's writing to a young pastor and saying, here's what to watch out for. Uh, in the very first chapter, he deals with the dangers of false teaching and false teachers creeping into the church. He tells him to defend the faith against them. Back in chapter 1, most of chapter 1 deals with that. He also deals with it again in chapter 4 and chapter 6, as we've just seen a number of weeks ago. He tells us how we are to conduct ourselves in public worship and prayer. In chapter 2, telling us to pray for kings and all who are in high places of authority. He tells us early in, the cha early in chapter 2 who is and who is not to teach and preach and have authority in the church. 
He tells us in chapter 3 the non-negotiable biblical qualifications for the offices of elder and deacon. He spends much time in chapter 4 and chapter 6 telling us about the importance of godliness. We've spent some time recently looking at that. He tells us the vital importance, he tells Timothy and us, of faithfully preaching and teaching the word of God. Back in chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. He also spends a good bit of time telling Timothy how certain kinds of people, different people groups, so to speak, in the church are to be treated. He talks about widows. He talks about elders. He talks about men and women, young women, old women, old men, young men. He even talks about slaves in the church in the end of chapter 5 and early in chapter 6. He tells him, here's how you treat all kinds of people in the church in a godly way. But there's one aspect of church life that Paul treats in this letter at great length uh, that should not escape our attention. And frankly, I think, I know it does for me, maybe it does for you too. Uh, it can make us kind of uncomfortable at times to talk about it. And that subject, of course, is money. You know, as a pastor throughout my time here and elsewhere, I've personally always been kind of uncomfortable, so to speak, uh, dealing with the subject in the church. Uh, you know, nobody likes to talk about it because people, you know, there's a, a caricature, a stereotype that that's all preachers talk about is money, and so we don't want to fit that, that kind of a mold. Uh, and yet notice how often Paul does this in this very letter. How often in a sixth, you know, he didn't write it with chapters, but six chapters of this letter, how often does Paul bring up money? He brings it up much more than you might, than you might think. Uh, he doesn't just talk about it earlier when he talks about showing double honor to elders who rule well and labor in the word. He talks about showing honor to widows. He's talking about financially supporting them. He's talking about, about money and diaconal needs and that kind of thing. He also spends the bulk of chapter 6, both our text this morning as well as what went before, dealing one way or another with the subject of, of money. You know, if you were to divide this letter up, not that this really matters in kind of inside baseball, but if you were to divide this letter up into sections and say, okay, where does it, how many verses does Paul spend in this letter in one way or another talking about money? It's about a fifth of the letter in a six-chapter book. About a fifth, by my count, roughly speaking, of the letter talking to Timothy about money in some way, shape, or form. And so, you know, when you consider the fact that what did we just read from chapter 3, verse 15? When you consider the fact that this letter was all about how we in the church are to conduct ourselves in the household of God, and he's giving us kind of the essentials, and he spends a fifth of that letter talking about money in some way, shape, or form, that should prove instructive to us. That, should, that means in some way uh, to avoid talking about money in church altogether uh, is, is not a good idea. We do so at our own Disadvantage. And so money, money must not be the central concern. If we spend all of our time talking about it, there's something wrong, right? But a right view of, of, of money, a right use of it, as clearly taught in Scripture, is a must. It's, it's, it's unavoidable. In fact, it is essential if we were to be a well-ordered church. How many churches, don't think of a name, or, you know, how many churches in your past whether your own church or ones you knew of, have had blow-ups and meltdowns and all kinds of bad things because of how money was handled. There's a reason Paul writes these things in this letter so often and so, so many times. 
how we, having a right biblical view of money and a right biblical view of the use of it is essential to be a well-ordered Christian church and one that is faithful to Christ our head. And so, you know, we want to afford, we want to avoid the errors, the extremes of some groups. Now, you might think of the prosperity gospel and many of those who preach that false gospel on the airwaves, TV, and, and, and the internet and radio. And we want to avoid those excesses, those errors, those heresies uh, about the subject of money. But when it shows up in a text of scripture so often, uh, we need to say what it says and deal with what it says faithfully. You, know, you, you can't make the whole counsel of God known, as Paul says to do in Acts 20, 27, if you avoid what the word of God says on certain subjects. The ones that make us uncomfortable... They're there for a reason. They're there for our benefit. So we're going to look at them as they come up throughout these uh, the books that we study, which happens to be the case in this with this book a number of times. So we're going to look at this morning uh, basically two things, Lord willing, from our text. The first thing, simply, and nothing complicated here, the first thing is a right view of worldly wealth. What is a right view of worldly wealth? And the second thing is, in accordance with that, uh, what is the right use of of worldly wealth for the Christians. So the first thing that Paul tells us about and calls our attention to in this text is a right view of worldly wealth. How are we to look at it and think of it? And his words in verse 17, you know, if you if you're reading this book at one sitting and you've just gotten done reading the previous verses in particular, there's a great doxology of praise to God. Verse 17 can kind of feel like a bucket of cold water in your face. It can feel kind of kind of jarring. Look at what he says in verse 17. He says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And one commentator says this, After the magnificent doxology of the preceding section, verses 15 and 16, these three verses bring one down from the heights with a jolt. You know, it's like this praise to God, the living God, and all of a sudden, charge though. You know, it, it's this jarring uh, feeling when you're reading it. Now, we might feel that jolt because maybe we're looking at it and you, th- you say to yourself, maybe you are. Maybe you're saying, is this out of context? You know, is, does this fit after that doxology? Why is Paul suddenly talking about this after that doxology of praise? Um, but really what he is doing is he's continuing the same thought he had begun earlier in the chapter. The, the divergence, so to speak, not that it wasn't with a perp- without a purpose, the, the change of subject, however slight, was actually the doxology and what went before it. He's continuing the, th- the same thought that he had said earlier in the chapter. And earlier in the chapter, you might remember in verses 5 to 10, remember what he warned us about, about the dangers of desiring to be rich, that it was a trap. Uh, he also talked about and warned against the love of money, which is the root of all kinds of of evil, so he's getting back into that same uh, that same subject. So there are people in the church who desire to be rich, right? Well, now he's going to talk about those who were rich. So it's the same subject, different side of the same coin in some in some ways. So it's not a new subject. He's still dealing with the same thing he talked about before. Now um, it might be a little bit jolting to realize what Paul is telling this young pastor to do. After giving him a solemn charge to keep himself in verses 13 to 14, he literally commands Timothy to, in turn, give a solemn charge to those in the church who were wealthy regarding their money. He's basically commanding Timothy to meddle. He's saying, you know, 
there are all these different groups you have to know how to treat them. There's, there's one more group he wanted him to deal with in a kind, pastorly way, and it had to do uh, with money. You know, in doing so, Paul is commanding Timothy and all faithful ministers of the gospel today uh, really to be innocent of the sins of partiality and the fear of man. He doesn't spell it out in that so many words, but the fact that he commands him to do what he commands him to do here requires that. That's a, That sounds easy. It's not. It is a difficult thing for any Christian, much less also a pastor, to avoid the sins of partiality and the fear of man. Now, how often are pastors and elders fearful of offending anybody in the church? But uh, the one group you're afraid of offending more than any other is probably those who are well off. I have seen that with my own eyes in my past experience before I was a pastor. It, it happens more often than you might think. How often are the pastors and elders of a church given cause for such trepidation in that way? And yet here Paul commands Timothy to solemnly charge them. I mean, there's commanding, there's counseling, there's pers- you know, persuading, there's suggesting. He tells them to charge them. It's, 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 it's hard to give a, a, an English equivalent of it. It's kind of like putting an oath on someone. A solemn obligation is what he's being told to put upon them. He's telling them, uh, telling Timothy to do that to them in the church. And so, you know, what is that charge before them? It's, it's, It's about how they viewed and used their wealth. I think that should be instructive for us in the church today, in the church in, in any age. So what is the right view of worldly wealth that Paul urges upon us in our text? First, The first thing is Paul warns us of two temptations and dangers that the wealthy, even believers, are subject or prone to. And those two temptations, those two dangers, are pride and idolatry. Pride and idolatry or false security. Finding your security in something other than God. That's idolatry. First, he tells Timothy to sternly charge or warn them not to be haughty. Not to be arrogant or boastful. Why, why must they be warned about sinful pride? That probably doesn't take much thought to think of why that is. But it's, you know, it's all too easy to look at material blessings that God gives us and has entrusted to us by his kindness and grace. And at some point to kind of wrongly conclude that we must be worthy or deserving of it. That is the constant temptation. You know, many of us, God has blessed in, in great ways. And, and you shouldn't be ashamed of it. You should be thanking God for it. You know, many of us, you have worked very hard for what you have you, in, in many cases. That's a good thing. But what does Paul tell us to do here? To, to not get haughty about it, to not get prideful about it, or think somehow that we have been worthy or deserving of it, much less that we have earned it from God, as if he was obligated to do what he has done. Not just that, but can also, what's the flip side of that? Not only can it, can it lead us to, to sinful pride, the other side of that coin is we might be tempted to look down on those who have less. You know, you know what's, the, what's the old saying? You know, so-and-so must be living right. Well, the flip side of that is the opposite, right? It's like, well, if somebody isn't doing as well as you, maybe they're not living right. You know, And so the, the sinful pride and arrogance can be something that is a constant source of temptation. Uh, But what does 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7 say? Paul writes there this. He says, For who sees anything different in you 
What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? What do you have that you haven't been given? Not just money, not just possessions, not just even the abilities you have, the gifts that you have that have allowed you to amass whatever possessions you have. Your intellectual gifts, your talents, all those things that you might use in your vocation, who gave them to you? If you're exceptionally intelligent and you, you, have, you have excelled in academics and in your field of expertise, who gave that to you? God did. Every last thing we have has been given by God, and if we have received it, why do we act as if we didn't? There's no room for boasting. The only boasting we can do is boasting in the Lord. And so if you are wealthy and have much money and possessions, even having much more than some other people have, Paul's questions apply uh, to you and really to everybody. What do you have that you did not receive? And that includes, you know, if you've worked very hard. Some people, this is a secret that maybe you've never heard, some people out there don't work hard. Some Christians don't work hard. Sloth is still a vice. It's still a sin. You know, we have a problem. We were talking this morning. Uh, some of the businesses in town, some of the restaurants, they can't find people to work. People don't want to work because they're being paid, sinfully I might add, not to work. The Bible says if a man will not work, neither shall he eat. If you have the ability to work, some don't. But if you have the ability to work and you just don't and you're living off someone else's work, that's That's sin. It's not okay. We should be working. We should be we're called to work. Uh, work was before the fall. It wasn't hard before the fall. We didn't have thorns and thistles before the fall, but work is a godly thing. Adam was put in the garden to tend and keep it before the fall. Uh, but some, you know, some don't work very hard at all. But, so you may have worked very hard. You may have worked much harder than others. Uh, you may have invested your money wisely where others may have wasted it or not invested it or saved it. Uh, you may have come into your, your fortune by means of, of something that has nothing to do with you individually. You know, some of us, we, you come into an inheritance. Well, you didn't work for that. You, know, you, you hit the lotto by being born into the right family. Nothing wrong with it. Nothing to feel guilty about, but don't boast about it. Who, who gave it to you? God did. Uh, God is the one who has given us all that we have, no matter who we are. Everything has been given to you by God. And that's, you know, that's whether you think, you know, we all think the rich person is someone else, right? If I say the rich, probably no one that's listening to my voice has themselves in mind. We think, oh, I have this, but somebody else has, has more, right? Uh, this, these things apply to all of us in some ways. But Paul does single out the rich uh, and it's not that hard to think uh, that he knew. He had people in mind probably when he wrote it. Timothy probably knew who he had in mind when he wrote it. But Paul says, why do you boast of it as if you did not receive it? There's no place for boasting or haughtiness or pride, only humility and gratitude for God's provision. The second temptation or danger that Paul mentions in our text is idolatry or false security. He says the rich are, quote, not to what? Set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. To set your hope on something is to trust in it, to say, as long as I have this, I'm fine. Well, you know, money is a fickle thing. 
you know, you might know that if you have a retirement account, uh, inflation is affecting your retirement account. It, it can be gone in a moment. Uh, money is a fickle, uncertain thing, to use Paul's words here. The old Puritan writer Stephen Charnock, uh, he's the writer of The Existence and Attributes of God, terrific a classic Puritan book, he writes this, to trust in our wealth is to make God a dead and stupid, that is mute, to make God a dead and stupid God and disown his providence in the bestowing it upon us. The apostle seems to, to intimate this in the opposition which he makes between uncertain riches and the living God in our text. It is to disown his providence is to look at the gift and stop there. I've got this, rather than saying, how do I get that? God's providence. God is the one who has given those things uh, to us. He goes on to say that, the trust, that to trust in money or any other created thing in this way is to, quote, magnify the things that we seek to above God as the chief authors of all our good. When we think of our possessions, our money and whatnot, as our security, as the author of all of our good, there's a word for that. It's idolatry. And it is a false security that will let you down when you need it the most. We should not magnify the gift instead of the giver who is God. God is the one we set our hopes upon, not his gifts. Uh, riches or worldly wealth are uncertain, is what Paul says. It, it's easy come, easy go. And so to set your hope upon worldly wealth or possessions is a disaster waiting to happen. And again, worse yet, it's idolatry. It's to set your hope on, on God's gifts instead of God himself who gives those gifts to you. Now notice, notice that Paul says that the God upon whom we are to set our hope and trust, verse, uh, there, verse 18, what? Richly provides us with everything, or verse 17, richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Is Paul condemning the rich here? No. Is Paul saying, oh, you know how those rich people are? No. In fact, he's presupposing, because he knows, that some of them were in the church. They were benefactors in many ways of the church. But there's nothing of the spirit of Marxism in this text. There's nothing of the spirit of Marxism in the Bible. You know, the Ten Commandments, I won't go too far off the field on this, but Ten Commandments, one of them is against covetousness. Another one of them is against theft. For there to be thou shalt not steal requires that you have private property. You can't steal something if no one owns anything. And we aren't to be covetous. But there's no, there's no hint of the spirit of Marxism here in Paul's instructions. He does not condemn in any way the rich for their wealth. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't falsely accuse them of wrongdoing. You know, the fact uh, in our day, many are, who are, I think, imbibed with something of the spirit of Marxism... What do they say? They say, well, if this person is wealthy, what does that mean about them? They must have victimized the person who's not to have that wealth. Is that actually how that works? Does it happen? Yes. But having something doesn't mean that's why somebody else doesn't. Sometimes there are very good explanations for both sides of that equation. Some people don't work and don't work hard and don't put anything into those things. And some do. When there's, when there's injustice, it should be corrected. If there's sin involved, it should be rebuked and repented of. But ha having the haves and the have-nots does not require or imply sin or oppression or wrongdoing 
or any such thing. It doesn't mean that the rich have victimized and oppressed others to get where they have gotten or gained their wealth. He doesn't engage or encourage class warfare in the church. There are those in the church right now, not here I'm saying, but in, in, in reformed churches who are engaging in class warfare and preaching it from our pulpits. It's a sin. It should not be, it should not be happening. There should be no class warfare among God's people. In fact, he flatly states in our text that the gifts that the wealthy have come from God. And he says that he basically says it's okay to what? To enjoy them. He doesn't say that wealthy should feel guilty. He says they should be rich in good works. He says God has given them all these things even to enjoy them. There's nothing wrong with enjoying the gifts that God has given you. Not just the wealthy, all of us. We all have things God has given us uh, that we wouldn't have otherwise. And they are given to us to enjoy. So let us be careful not to foster a spirit of envy or covetousness in the church. That is still one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not covet. The church more than anywhere else in this world should be a place where there is no division in the church on the basis of race or class or any such thing. We should not be mirroring the world in these things. The world, especially those who have drunk the wine of Marxism, that's what they do. They, their whole plan is to divide, and we have brought that nonsense into the church in many ways. We should never divide over race or class or anything because we are one in Christ. You know, it reminds me, I know I've told this story before. I think I have five stories, and I keep recycling them, but... Back in my Navy days, and all my stories are Navy related, but in my Navy days, I was a lowly enlisted schlub. I was an E5, right in the middle of the pay grade. And I was a working man. My, my working uniform looked like a prison uniform. It was the dungaree uniform. Uh, but the prison uniforms were nicer. They didn't have bell bottoms. Mine did. You know, it was not, not a good look. It wasn't something you want to put on a postcard or frame on your wall. Um, but on, on the Lord's Day, on Sundays aboard my ships, that I served on, the Constellation and the Kitty Hawk, when you walk through the chapel door, uh, rank stopped. You know, I remember sitting in chapel next to one of our pilots, you know, godly Christian man, and it's drilled into your head since day one of boot camp. When you're enlisted and there's an officer, good morning, sir, salute, like, they're great, you're not, you know, kind of thing. Uh, and so I would be sitting next to a, an officer in my chapel, uh, during worship and I found myself out of habit oh sir sir this sir that and he had to tell me hey you know I forget what his name was forgive me but he told me his first name no it's you know Brian or whatever his name was it's like I'm not sir here I'm not lieutenant whatever here I'm this is a chapel this is this is church here there's no rank uh, and that was something that I think we would do well to emulate in many ways uh, in in the church and so let us not foster a spirit of envy and division in the church. You know, God is no respecter of persons, Paul says in Romans 2.11, and so we should not be in that regard partial either. So let those who have more not look down on those who have less. Let those who have less not be uh, in any way resenting those who have more. Uh, and such partiality and prejudice should not have any place in the church of God. And so the second thing, the second thing is what's a, a right use, not just the right view, but a right use of worldly wealth, the first thing he says is it's okay to enjoy it. It's okay to enjoy the gifts that God has given you. But look at verses 18 to 19 
Paul says of the rich, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now, this is still part of Paul's charge to the wealthy in the church, and those same instructions, though, should be taken to heart by every single one of us. You know, when you read when you read that list I just read in verse 18, do good, be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Is there any believer for whom that does not fit? The degree might be different, but the essential thing, uh, the command is still the same. Those same instructions should be taken to heart by every one of us, whether rich or poor or somewhere in between. After telling us what not to do, you know, not to be haughty, not to set our hope on uncertain riches, he now tells us what we should do. He spells out our duties uh, as believers. And the first thing is that we are to what? Do good. To do good. Verse 18. You know, sometimes the rich in this world, uh, they can tend uh, to uh, get used to other people doing all the work for them. You know, what do they say? Make your money work for you. You know, work harder, not smarter, not harder, whatever you want to say. Uh, sometimes, you know, it, it's, it's much easier to write a check than to pick up the hammer. You know, and so and some people that but that's some people. That's what they do. Uh, They write the checks, but we shouldn't just be writing checks. Paul doesn't say to them, just give your money away. He says, do good. We should be in whatever ways we are able to do doing good. Whatever your social status may be, we are to be people who do good with whatever we have. Paul says in Galatians six, nine to ten, he says, let us not grow weary of what of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, he's not saying that you have to enact world peace on your own, right? As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And then he adds, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. God gives you opportunities. He's not saying solve all the world's problems. None of us can do that. But he does say, as you have opportunity, God brings opportunities to you. You know them when you see them. And he says, Do what? Do good. Do the thing that you can do. Don't worry about the things that you can't do. Do good. And you will reap if you don't give up. And he says to do that especially to those who are of the household of faith, to your fellow believers in Christ. And so I'll ask this morning, do you look to do good when you see the opportunity arise, especially to your brothers and sisters in the faith? Uh, are, Are we... Are we self-absorbed? Are we more concerned for our own comfort and convenience than we are being able to do good with what God has trusted us with? Uh, Next, the second thing, he tells us the rich are to be what? Rich in good works. Kind of a play on words here. Notice how Paul keeps using the word rich throughout our text. He He gives a charge to the rich. He says God gives us all things richly, same word, to enjoy. And now he says, hey, if you're going to be rich, be rich in good works. You don't have to be rich to be rich in good works, do you? That's the kind of rich that matters in the kingdom. Uh, Paul says it's better to be rich in good works than to be rich in worldly wealth, although most of us on our own don't normally think that way. And this is one of the main reasons, if you think about it, this is one of the main reasons that, that Christ has saved us from our sins in the first place. You know, he, he saved us, he died for our sins that we might be forgiven that we might be reconciled to God, and that's obviously a very important thing. But the the Lord Jesus also, in Titus 2.14 tells us, gave himself for us, what? 
to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. It's like Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. You're saved by grace. You're not saved by good works, but you are saved for them, for the purpose of them. It's one of the reasons that, that Christ laid down his life on the cross for us to save us from our sins is to redeem us as a people for his own possession. And the description of us as his own possession is that we might be a people who are zealous for good works. It's what makes us tick. It's what gets you out of bed in the morning. What can I do to serve Christ and my neighbor? The third thing he tells us here is that we are to be generous and ready to share. Now, again, this is, this is directed to those who are rich, but it's true of every single one of us. We are to be ready to share. You know, what is, remember the widow's might? The widow came into the temple and gave her last two pennies. You know, whoever was collecting it didn't, didn't throw a party, didn't like, wow, look at that. But Jesus did. It's not the amount, per se. You know, uh, Proverbs eleven twenty four to 25 says this. One gives freely yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched and one, uh, one who waters will himself be watered. You know, God, God's arithmetic or his accounting uh, the accounting of faith is not like the accounting of the world. That doesn't mean that if you're a Christian bookkeeper that your numbers are going to be screwy. What it means is, you know, faith has to enter into the picture somehow. You know, four plus four is still eight. Nobody's saying Christian math is still math. It might be the only right math at this point. Uh, but, but our accounting has to include faith. God's arithmetic, so to speak, is different than that of the world. You know, faith in God who is the giver of every good and perfect gift and, and that God who is the rewarder of faith and good works has to enter into our calculations even when it comes to our money. You know, look at that proverb again. Proverbs eleven twenty four to 25. You can see the logic. And if you're, if you're honest with yourself, most of us have this same kind of thinking in the back of our heads when things happen. It says, one gives freely, it grows all the richer. The other withholds what he should give, but what happens? And only suffers want. You get the logic, right? The same logic goes with tithing. We say, well, if I give this, what's going to happen? I can do math. I'm not a math major, but I can do basic checkbook math. If I write this check, or if I give so-and-so this money because they have a need, I'm not going to have whatever that amount was. And I know what my bills are. And so, you know, you start thinking, well, if I do this, I'm not going to have this. But what are you forgetting when you do that? God. Somehow, you know, those of you who have tithed throughout your lives, uh, you, you know, it, it, when you write the check, it's, <laughs> you know. But what happens? Here you are. You still have your home. You still have food on the table. You still have clothing on your back. God has provided. It's funny how that works. One gives freely, it grows all the richer. Faith has to enter into our financial thinking, especially when it comes to doing good and helping others who are in need. Second Corinthians 8, 7, Paul says that we should excel, is the word he uses, excel in the grace of giving. Not just talking about stuff, you know, your offerings and tithes at church. Giving to those who need, who have some kind of a need. And what was his reasoning? What was Paul's motivation or reasoning for excelling 
in giving. He gives us the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, two verses later, he says, For you know, he's saying this isn't a newsflash to you, he says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became what? Poor, so that by you, by his poverty, might become rich. He's not talking about worldly wealth there. He's not saying that, you know, the prosperity gospel nonsense, that Jesus died so you'd be healthy, wealthy, and whatever. Um, he's saying Jesus enriched you in ways you can't even comprehend by becoming poor for your sake, by laying aside his glory and dying the death of a criminal on the cross for our sins. He became poor for our sakes and especially on the cross. He came in humility and died for our sins there on the cross. And by his poverty and by his death, he has purchased for us all things for our salvation. All the blessings you have in Christ were purchased for you by Christ in his suffering and his resurrection. If you are in Christ, you lack no good thing. God has given you his son for your salvation, for your redemption. He has given you his spirit for your sanctification and to be the guarantee of your inheritance in glory. Paul says in the very next chapter, 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 8, he says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Paul wasn't twisting any arms. For God loves a what? A cheerful giver. And God, here's what he adds. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. You won't suffer lack. In fact, the more good you're doing with it, the more God will provide for that good to keep doing so that you will what? Having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. This is not name it, claim it. This is not prosperity gospel. This is not, uh, you know, blessed, blessed to be a blessing or, you know, the more you give, the bigger your bank account will be. Your bank account might not be bigger, but it will be sufficient. And he will keep giving you enough to be abounding in every good work. Now, what does Paul say about all this doing of good and being rich in good works and being generous and ready to share? In verse 19, he says, in doing these things, we are what? thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. You know, there's no money in heaven, I'm pretty sure. Uh, I don't think that's how that works. Uh, I'm not, I'm not, not an uh, expert on that. But he's saying they're storing up treasure for themselves and giving away earthly wealth to those who have need. Now, I don't think it's less than, I think it's greater than. What it looks like, I have no idea. But it means they're not losing anything. They're actually gaining something. They just don't, we're not able to see it at this time in this life. It brings to mind the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21. Jesus there tells us, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves what? Treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where's your heart? 
It's where your treasure is. Where is your treasure? It should be ultimately in heaven. Because your hopes aren't set on the treasures of this world. They're set on what God has given us by his grace in heaven one day. So savings and planning responsibly for the future, those are good things. It's not a Christian view of things to say, well, I'm not going to plan for my retirement because I have faith. You know, that's, that's not really a responsible thing to do. Um, but as believers, we should not be in the business of hoarding up our treasures here on earth. We should be at, at the very least as concerned with our heavenly retirement, so to speak, as we are with our earthly one. We should be thinking longer term than our old age and retirement. We should be thinking of what good we can do in this life and what God will bless uh, as a, a reward of his grace and kindness in heaven for the good works that he, that he works in us by his spirit. So all of our treasures in heaven, unlike those here on earth, are uncertain, Paul says. They are subject to inflation or theft. Sometimes those are the same things. So let us by faith set our hope on God, who is the giver of all of our good gifts, and take hold, as Paul says, of that which is truly life. To him be the glory through Jesus Christ. Amen.